0: still <laughs> good morning still i said day you did say day. Good day i'm savannah and i'm alicia and this is burden of proof
1: i didn't do my hello 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 oh. hello
0: oh i meant to ask you beforehand um i don't know what to do with with gore report i don't know how to say thank you for all the nice like, things that they've said
1: i was just about to do that oh <laughs>
0: okay
1: <laughs> i'll show you. That's okay. I might leave this in here. (laughs)
0: Okay, that's so funny. I'm like, they've just been so nice. I'm overwhelmed. Yeah, I was
1: gonna say, I think we said it in one of the last episodes that we recorded that we're gonna do um like the social media shout-outs for people who comment and stuff. But like sometimes we should still do shout outs for special things. A special, especially special things. And yeah, so I was gonna give a big, huge shout-out and lots of love to Gore Report.
0: I love you guys, Gage and Ray. I think we're friends now, so. I know. Hey to the homies. Yeah.
1: <laughs> that was thoroughly embarrassing for you, wasn't it? No, I think I'm hilarious.
0: <laughs> I'm going to start saying it more. <laughs> hey to the homies.
1: Anyway, for those of you listening, that if this is your first time with us, you wouldn't have heard, but a couple episodes ago, we mm-hmm. gave you a little promo or preview of their podcast. And we've just been exchanging messages and whatnot. Yeah. So it's been very nice to connect and network with other podcasters. Yeah. Love their podcast. If you're
0: looking for a podcast that's a little bit, I think it's safe to say it's a little darker than what we get into sometimes. I mean,
1: yes, with a the name like Gore Report, you yeah. expect that. Exactly.
0: So if you're looking for something a little darker, a little bit more intense, they are fantastic. I love
1: them. Yeah, Thank but you I think that I think that everybody should have a variety based on your mood. As I to, do for sure, because sometimes like their their episode this past week was fantastic. But yeah, I had to tell you because yeah. you have big feelings about bones. I do have a lot of big feelings about bones. Yes, so um. I had to say maybe don't listen to this one. <laughs> Because it's rough. Yeah. Like, it was really rough. But they do a great job. Yeah. They did an excellent job. Absolutely. I don't know how you would tell that case without getting gory Mm -hmm. and gross. Like, there's no way to. Yeah. Because some true crime is gory and gross. Yeah. And sometimes you want that. Like, sometimes that's the mood you're in. You can handle the darker stuff. Yeah.
0: The title of that case is fascinating. I'm going to look it up so I can give it a shout out right now. I remember part of it, but I don't want to mess it up. I know it's Joe Clark. The The bone bone (laughs) bone crusher? The The bone breaker? Oh gosh.
1: We're really prepared.
0: Clearly, we talked a lot. We're very prepared to do this beforehand, like, at an outline. The Baraboo Bone Breaker, which is a fantastic title, and I really wanted to listen to it. But for those of you who don't know this about me, I have um, OCD, I have obsessive compulsive disorder. And so, like, part of that for me is, like, I don't want to know what's going on inside my body because I'll obsess over it. And like, what are bones? I don't have bones. I'm made of pipe cleaners and fluff. I'm a puppet. (laughs) Like, and that's what Nicholas, my fiance, will call my, he's he's like, you probably just have a pipe cleaner bruise. Like, that's why that hurts so bad or something like that. Like, we just try not to talk about it, which is why I couldn't listen to this episode. But man, with a title like that, it sounds so cool.
1: Yes, it was a great episode. So. So anyway... Give Gore Report a try. We know not everybody's into the super gory stuff, but they do an excellent job covering. Yeah, it's amazing. Cases. They did um
0: the Sarah Boone case that we also covered, mm-hmm. and they did a great job of like balancing playing those harsh clips that I didn't want to play because they gave me the heebie-jeebies. Yeah. Um. So if you wanted to hear those, highly recommend you can go over to Gore Report and listen to their episode on it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. All right. Are you ready? I don't think we have anything else.
0: No, we don't. I am so ready because you've been talking about this case for like almost a month now of work on it, right? Mm, like three weeks. That's a long yeah. time to work on a case Like because we do them so fast. It's normally yeah. like
1: a week of really intense research and then we record. What's hilarious is I picked this case thinking that, oh, yeah, because it's an arson case. So I thought, well, there won't be a lot of, you know, like, Mm -hmm. there's no relationship between the arsonist and victims. There's nothing. Like, so I thought it was going to be a quick case, and it turned into a two-parter because literally this man is, like, one of the most prolific arsonists of our time, and I just didn't realize that when... I initially decided to do this, but then you get in
0: it and you gotta you gotta see it through. Because
1: exactly, Mm -hmm.
0: so I'm excited about it. I'm excited to do something a little different than what we normally cover because crime, true crime, always tends to go like murder, stabby stabby, shoot shoot. Yes, and so I'm excited for something different. I hope you guys are excited. Yay! I do have my notes up so that I can
1: take notes because I've been. Yeah, it does get. I mean, this spanned over several years. So it does, and there's lots of fires, obviously. So it does get a little confusing. But if you're confused, just let me know. I'll do my best. Mm -hmm. I think I have a good grasp on like what fires kind of happened when and how everything went down. Some of them I will just kind of go through a brief list of like Mm -hmm. this fire happened, this was the damage. And that's just to show you. Just how much chaos and damage this man caused, but without trying to make it boring, you know I'm not going to list every single yeah. one and details and whatever. But yes, there's a lot of information to cover. Let's get into it. All right, well, as you probably read on the title, this is about John Lawrence Orr, also known as the Pillow Pyro. The Pillow Pyro, yes. what a name. Yeah, the firefighters gave him that name. That sounds like
0: something firefighters would do. Yeah. I've been around a lot of them.
1: Yes. Oh, speaking of that, I want to give a disclaimer <laughs> Okay. to one of our beloved listeners. Don't come for me. I know you know firefighter terms. I'll probably get something wrong. Don't come for me. You know who you are. You know who you are. I love you, but don't come for me because the average person would not know those terms, so I tried to simplify wherever possible. All right. Okay. Now that that's out of the way. John Leonard Orr was born April 26, 1949 in Glendale, California, and he grew up not far from there in Highland Park, a city that borders both South Pasadena and Glendale. The Orr family was pretty much like any family post-World War II. Everything was seemingly picture perfect. You know, those nuclear mm-hmm. families. Make America great again. <laughs> no,
0: never say it again, ever. Ugh. No, we do not. We do not. We do not.
1: Yeah, well, it wasn't picture perfect. So No, because
0: it never that's is. That's kind of why I
1: wanted to say that.
0: <laughs> I'd gone so long without hearing that phrase. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Fine, I'll I'll be fine. Flashbacks (laughs) to 2016 and 2017 coming again in 2018 and 2019 and
1: 2020 and 2022. Here we are. (sighs) Well, the Orr family didn't really encourage extracurriculars like team sports. Rather, John and his brothers were in the Boy Scouts. And often spent time hunting, fishing, or at their uncle's sporting goods store, just hanging out with their dad and uncle, talking about hunting and fishing.
0: I was going to say something, and I don't mean it, because I was a Girl Scout, and it was the best thing that I ever did, extracurricular-wise. It was so much fun. But my first thought when you said they didn't let them play sports, but they were in the Boy Scouts, was, oh, so they wanted them to be losers? <laughs> no. <laughs> and I don't mean that, because I, I loved the Girl Scouts. It was the best thing ever, and I didn't play sports. It was just funny. That's very sexist of you. I'm no, sorry, I'm
1: <laughs> it was just a
0: joke. It was just a joke. But it sounds like they were losers. <laughs>
1: well, I'm just kidding. John loses in the end. So. Yeah. Well. Yeah. yeah. You know. I'm just kidding, you guys. I'm sorry. I am fine with calling John a loser. Yeah. Well. Yeah. That's. I'm okay with that, and I'm sure most of you will be <laughs> by the end of this. Okay. So John developed a bit of a reputation for being odd. After he shot and killed a skunk with a bow and arrow while out exploring one day with his friends. Yeah. My dude, we're just looking for rocks. What made it even weirder was that he literally said he didn't know why he did it. He just felt compelled to do it.
0: I, <laughs> There's too many
1: directions that I can go with this. Um, Even weirder than that. How old was he? I'm sorry. He was like, I don't know, probably around 10. Okay. Even stranger than that, he actually collected the arrow from the body of the skunk, and then he had to go home early because he reeked of skunk juice.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, no, no. Why? Just Okay, just just go pay the $3 for a new arrow and just leave it if you're going to be stupid.
1: Because now you have to go
0: take a bath in tomato juice. Yeah. Also, I, I thought that care. like skunks would be way more prevalent in adult life because of how often they're referenced <laughs> in child media. Like quicksand. <laughs> Why do we talk about quicksand I, so much? Yeah. Oh, especially. Those of us who
1: grew up in the 70s and 80s. That's all like, you talk about. I've never I have never seen quicksand in my life, but I really thought it was gonna be very prevalent. Oh, sorry, on... I was late to work. I had there's a quicksand in the road again. <laughs> also, it's not like a fast
0: thing. They call it quick sand. It's very I slow. Know. It's very slow. I'm sinking. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm still here. <laughs> anyway.
1: Okay. <laughs> Skunks. That's how we got here. Go ahead. So even though the Orr family seemed picture perfect initially, they didn't seem so perfect by the time John was in high school. At some point in his teen years, John's mom left the family for a former flame. (gasps) John was the one to find the letter. Oh, no. And though this would seemingly be a pivotal moment, and his brothers claim that it tore the family apart, John says it didn't matter. It didn't have an impact on us. Just let that sink in. Okay. (laughs) Well, okay. It was also in high school, he got a paid position with his high school newspaper, setting type for the printer. He then proceeded to break the rules and printed himself business cards to sell his services as a handyman. Okay. John claimed that he got hired to perform several tasks, even to help a neighborhood divorcee wanted more than just handyman services
0: oh i'm so sorry mr teenager i can't pay you today
1: his dad also taught him photography which he would take up as well we'll call it a hobby oh no (laughs) but john's only career aspirations were actually to become a police officer or firefighter okay he decided during his senior year of high school That he would join the Air Force after graduation because it would give him the career training that he needed to help with his ultimate goals. Well, and you know, it was free. That, and it was also likely that he was going to be drafted to Vietnam. Yeah, anyway. So so he might as well choose the branch that he wants to go to. Fair enough. So after boot camp, John proposed to his high school sweetheart before he headed off to fire training. He and his wife were married and honeymooned before they were stationed in Spain, where he spent two and a half years as an Air Force firefighter, which, strangely, he hated. Like firefighting or the Air Force part? Yes. It wasn't actually the work that he hated. Yeah. It was military life that he hated. Yeah. Despite his interest in police and fire... John actually had quite an issue with authority and being told what to do. Yeah, okay. Now, I'm not going to go into detail about how terrible he was to his wife. No. So, I'll just break it down like this. He was immature, uncommunicative, away from home as much as possible, and he cheated. A lot. So then why are you married? Eventually... She left and came back to the U.S., but she did not divorce him. Once alone, John spent more time studying how to be a good firefighter and worked his way to a promotion as a sergeant. He was eventually transferred back to the U.S., where his wife rejoined him, and just six months before his discharge, they discovered she was pregnant with their first daughter. John insisted on leaving the Air Force as planned. This meant that his wife would have to forego free prenatal care and delivery. What? He did not care. He said, I'm out. What? Yeah. They're otherwise broke, but he wanted out of the military so bad that it didn't matter that she was pregnant. Okay. (laughs) Is basically what he said delightful despite leaving the military taking different civilian jobs moving in with his in-laws because they were broke and having a baby john's behavior didn't really change much he continued his previous douchery (laughs) until he convinced his wife that their marriage had a better chance of surviving if they moved into their own place Well, obviously, duh. Shockingly, it changed nothing. During that time, John studied to take the civil service test to become an officer of the LAPD. He also contemplated leaving his wife and baby, but ultimately stuck around for the time being. He excelled at all but one area of the test to join LAPD. I'm so scared to figure out which one. I'm sure you'll be surprised to hear that he had a concerning score on all the mental health tests. Mm, Bingo, bingo! The doctor performing the test noted that John's profile was rather bizarre and claimed that the combination of scores was most often seen in people confused or in denial of their sexual orientation. Huh. You never mentioned who he was cheating with, did you? No, but that's not the thing. No. He's got a weird sex thing, but that's not the thing. Okay. Not that that's weird. I guess I'm saying he has a weird sex thing, not just a different sex thing. Okay, yeah. And no, that wasn't me. my chair. Made a noise. I'm sorry. <laughs> what What would I'll you have to done to make that noise? <laughs> I don't know, but I just moved my chair, and it's making strange noises. So it's not
0: that he's questioning his sexuality; it's that he's just got his own weird crap
1: going on. Then, yeah, he has a kink of sorts. We'll say, but that. it's so
0: bad that it the test made it look like he was questioning his sexuality.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's what they said at the time. I don't know that. I think today they'd have a better grasp on what all that looks like. Fair enough. But at the time, yes, that's, that's what that doctor had seen. That's so interesting. So the doctor's official diagnosis was personality trait disturbance and emotionally unstable personality. Okay. Needless to say, John was rejected from the LAPD.
0: That's not needless to say. (laughs) I should clarify. This is the LAPD we're talking about. Not exactly known for their crime
1: busting abilities in this era of history. Oh, this era was terrible. This is what, yeah, Yeah. specifically right here. And if he had made it in, it would have been been worse. So much worse. But John wasn't going to give up that easily. He appealed the decision, submitting multiple other recommendations and an evaluation from a private psychiatrist. Still, the city of Los Angeles said no. No. Hard pass.
0: (laughs) Hard. Not even like gentle. Like,
1: hard pass. (laughs) Big red stamp saying no rejected. I guess maybe it was kind of gentle because he moved on and he applied for the Los Angeles Fire Department. He was accepted to the LA program, but ended up getting fired after scoring poorly on some written tests and rope and ladder challenges. All was. All was not lost, though, is he found a listing for an opening in the Glendale fire department. And to give you a reference, I believe Glendale is... Never mind. I can't remember if it's north or south. It's kind—it's of, just outside of LA. Yeah. No, yeah, yeah. I just... I'm trying the to Glendale picture Pasadena the The Glendale
0: Pasadena area is super popular in a lot of media these days, so most mm-hmm. people probably know where it is.
1: Yeah. So it was in Glendale that he thrived and worked his way up the ranks. Despite John being so terrible, (laughs) his wife stayed with him, and two years after the birth of their first daughter, she gave birth to another girl. By the time that baby girl was one year old, John left his family just as his mother had by leaving nothing but a note behind. Well, that's really rude. And when I say nothing, I mean, absolutely nothing. Like, he took all his stuff? He even cleaned out their bank accounts.
0: Oh, that's so nice to leave the mother of both of your kids with no money. Mm-hmm.
1: What a catch. Unlike his mother, though, John did see his children for visits, but usually just kind of every other weekend um, when he wasn't working and occasional vacations. John went on to marry at least three more times and often had different girlfriends, and he'd bring his daughters around every one of them. Oh, I hate that. Despite this less-than-ideal relationship, his daughters were seemingly understanding of his demanding career as a firefighter, and they were proud of him. They'd even brag to friends about him when he got a promotion to become an arson investigator. And they'd often see him on the news being interviewed and then tell all their friends about it the next day. Mm -hmm. What his daughters didn't know is that John's ability to understand arson and crime is often the only thing that saved his career as a firefighter. Yeah. Regardless of how successful John appeared to be in his career, he continued to regularly have troubles due to his attitude, reactions to authority and overstepping when it came to his duties, which is really kind of putting it mildly. Yeah. Honestly, it seems to me that the only thing that saved his job and earned him the promotion as Glendale's first arson investigator was the fact that he was a bloodhound. Like, he would not give up. Yeah. His second job for a long time, because as you know... Firefighters yeah. often have second jobs. Yes. Yeah. The
0: the, the life, the, the way that they live kind of lends to the yes. extra.
1: Yeah. He was a security guard at a Sears, and there he learned a lot of skills on spotting crime and questioning people. Yeah. But as you can imagine, he had wanted to be a police officer. Yep. So being Paul Blart doesn't really. <laughs> <I wasn't laughs> I was trying to avoid using that reference, but yes. Why are we avoiding it? It's the- first of all, first of all, no, uh,
0: full stop. I Paul know. Bart Mall Cop is arguably the best movie ever made. It is perfect. It has everything that you need. It's perfect. I'm going to watch that when i get home. <laughs> oh. So do you know what? No, I take it back. He would be lucky to be it's Paul, Paul Bart. Lucky. And the second Paul Blart is just as, well, okay, it's not just as good, but it <laughs> is also good. good. Say, the
1: seconds are never.
0: But it's good. <laughs> Come on. I, you know what? I'm going to take it back. I don't want to disrespect my man by saying that he wanted to pee. You know, no. I love Paul Blart. I love me some Paul. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right. So John also seemed to have a natural gift for tracking points of origin, which led to an extremely comprehensive understanding of arson. At a time when arson cases were only solved about 8% of the time, and it was happening so often, it had been declared an epidemic. Especially in California, where brush fires are a regular danger to all residents, someone like Don Orr was exactly who they believed they needed. Now, years later, as a seasoned arson investigator, his official work record was glowing when it came to his investigating, But he continued to overstep quite often, broke dress code constantly, and abused the perceived authority of his position. Yeah. I just want to make a note. Now, mind you, this is like by the time he's an arson investigator, it's the 1980s. Okay. I'm just painting a picture here. It's the 1980s, and he's like in his late 30s to early 40s. Okay. And he would get in trouble for showing up on the scene out of uniform and he'd have like a button down shirt and it It would be like undone. It was like he was trying to be like Magnum P.I. He's like, I'm the sexy arson investigator. Look at my chest hair. Look at my chest hair. It's very
0: good. It's very thick and legit. It would catch on fire very quickly.
1: Time must stop the arson. He might like that. Oh, no. We'll get into that sh- shortly. On October 10th, 1984, the first in a string of fires across Southern California broke out in a South Pasadena Ollie's hardware store. To understand how the fire started, you have to understand Ollie's. Though deemed a hardware store, Oli's was actually a kind of catch-all store that carried everything from hardware items to home decor to crafting supplies. Are we sure it's not Ollie's? No, it's Ole's. It's spelled O-L-E apostrophe S. And every source that I have pronounced it Ole's. Okay.
0: We just haven't. Because we have to me, Ole's here, and that's Yeah, similar. no. It,
1: it's, no. Yeah, this is different. Okay. um, Because to me, the way it's spelled, it would be Ole's. <laughs> Ole. <laughs> but everybody pronounced it Ole's. Okay. So, the fire was set among highly combustible foam. You know, the kind of foam used for cushions or pillows. Yeah, the, the, f- the pillow. The pillow pyro. The
0: pillow pyro.
1: Yes. The fire quickly spread, and despite the store employees making announcements over the speaker system and ushering shoppers out, not everyone made it out. Oh, no. Nearby the foam section of the store was Ada Deal and her two-year-old grandson, Matthew no. Troidel. Ada and her husband had planned on just stopping into Oli's for a few minutes to pick up some items before taking Matthew out for some ice cream. They split up once in the store, and unfortunately, Ada and Matthew found themselves in the wrong part of the store, so to speak.
0: Dang it, he's not gonna get his ice cream Sunday.
1: According to a store employee who barely made it out, he had told Ada to follow him out of the store, but she either didn't listen or fell behind. So Ada and Matthew never made it out. And neither did two Oli's employees. Carolyn Krause, the wife of an LAPD officer and mother of two young children and Jimmy Satina, a high school student and exceptional athlete who was already being scouted by a professional baseball team. Mm-hmm. Also, sad note about Jimmy Satina as well um, that I didn't hear about till after I had already, like, kind of wrote this out is that his, his family was low income. I think dad had just lost his job. The family didn't even have, like, they had just bought a car that they were all going to have to share for all of them. And Jimmy, they were relying on Jimmy's paychecks to help pay for the car and and to get insurance on the car so that they could start driving it. Yeah. Not that it means any less to lose your son, you know, your 16, 17-year-old son,
0: just because,
1: but, like... It just adds, yes, it just added a whole nother layer of, yeah, it's actually not surprising that they didn't make it out, though. According to the descriptions by those who made it out, the fire burned hot and fast. A group that did make it out of a fire escape door told investigators that they were literally running from flames headed towards them. And when they opened the door, it felt as though they were forcibly pushed out. Oh, my gosh. So for those of us who remember the 80s, 90s, early 90s, or that we rely on Hollywood (laughs) for our fire references, (laughs) it's kind of like the movie Backdraft. So if you're old enough to remember the movie Backdraft. If not, you should definitely go watch it because it has the only Baldwin brother that I ever loved. Okay. Billy Baldwin. Okay. As for the reason the four victims did not make it out of the store, it's a little complicated. The building had originally been two stores, a grocery store on one side and a drugstore on the other. When Ole's moved in, they obviously needed to make adjustments to join the two sides into one store. But the main issue that needed addressed was that the grocery side had a sprinkler system installed while the drugstore side had not, Hmm. which meant that they would need to either install a sprinkler sprinkler system throughout Mm -hmm. the entire place in order to tear down the dividing wall. Instead, they went for the, I'm guessing, cheaper option, and they received approval to create doorways in the wall between the two sides that were big enough to allow people to pass through. And they installed special fire doors that would automatically close when the temperature rose over 160 degrees. Unfortunately, this safety measure Was exactly the thing that trapped the four victims who did not make it out. Dang. It's believed that they tried to get out through those doors. And then when they realized, oh, these doors aren't going to open back up, they suffered from smoke inhalation before making it to other emergency exits. Mm Mm-hmm. When the firefighters arrived on scene, they were completely unprepared for what they encountered and had to call for backup. There was just one issue. Some of their people had already been called out to two other small fires. One was just one city over, and the second was across town. Dang. Later, they would discover these were small diversions to allow the large fire at Ole's to take hold. Apparently, that was a common tactic at the time for both thieves who wanted a diversion to steal items from a store or gas station, and also used by arsonists to lure fire teams away from the actual target. Because their teams and resources were scattered, it took several hours to put the Ole's fire out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, it it, it normally destroyed. takes. That's the thing that people don't realize about fires too is that it's not just oh, put water in the fire. It yeah. is exhausting and it is yes. very long. Yeah, like you're not going to be on the scene of a fire for 30 minutes to put out a fire. Like it.
1: Yeah, once it takes hold, it oh, it's no. so different. If you don't get like, it out right away. My
0: fiance used to be a firefighter, and like when he would go on structure fires, and I would he would text me sometimes, oh, going on structure fire, and so I would keep track of the news and
1: whatever and um hours yes yeah no one seemed to know how the fire started however there was one man who knew and he was there standing among the onlookers taking pictures which i mean why you know why (laughs) i know why it's a gross reason yes it is because investigators were stumped on how it started and the media wanted answers, the fire chief, who was known for being stubborn and suspected of being overly prepared for retirement,
0: knew no, Yeah,
1: he deemed it accidental. Now, John Orr, the esteemed arson investigation captain, and Jim Allen, the California State Fire Marshal, who both arrived on scene afterwards. Supposedly. They openly disagreed with the chief. Oh. Yes. That's kind of weird. Is it? I mean, yeah, it is actually. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, they openly disagreed, like strongly. The only two witnesses that were interviewed... Both stated that the flames started low or on the floor and worked their way up. To John and Jim's dismay and contradiction to what those witnesses observed, the chief officially deemed it as an electrical fire that started in the attic space and was accelerated by highly combustible polyfoam material in the store. Okay. This I determination... Mean, the math ain't mathin', but fine. Yeah. He just wanted to retire, man. Yeah. Maybe he should have done so a little earlier, but. yep. Yeah. This determination led to several lawsuits against the store, all of which cited the supposed faulty electric. And Oli's didn't have any proof otherwise. Yeah. So they didn't really fight it, and they settled the lawsuits. I would say the only good thing that came of that was the fact that Jimmy Satina's parents got some money. Yeah. Which took that, at least that away, so they could focus on, you know, just grieving Grieving. the loss of their son and not stressing about money as well. Yeah. The chief's decision also led to a seemingly obsessed John Orr doing all he could to prove the chief wrong until he was basically told. Back off. Just two months later, another Oli's hardware store in Pasadena had a fire started in the foam section as well. Fortunately, an employee put it out before it spread, and this time the investigators confirmed it was arson. Mm, Okay. They not only determined it was set intentionally, but they found the device that started it. It was a cigarette. With matches bound to it with a rubber band, all of which was concealed within a folded sheet of yellow lined notepad paper. Okay. It's very good imagery here. Okay. So the the key is that you light the cigarette. Yeah. It gives them an opportunity to light the cigarette, get out of there before the cigarette then burns to the matches, which then catches the paper. Yeah. It's the whole yada, yada. Yes. While investigators could prove it was arson, they were unable to connect it to a suspect. Yeah. Years went by, and just as it always had been, fires were set, investigations done, sometimes resulting in arrests, sometimes not. John Orr had built quite a reputation and became known as truly one of the top arson investigators in California, even writing articles, testifying as an expert witness in court and regularly giving interviews to the media with his chest hair. Yeah, with the chest hair out. On January 13th, 1987, during one of many arson investigator conferences John attended over the years, he checked into the Holiday Inn in Fresno. Shortly after John's arrival, a small fire was started in a sleeping bag display at Payless Shoe Store. Just a few blocks from the Holiday Inn, the fire was quickly put out, only causing about $100 worth of damage. But the same evening, another fire was started at a small fabric store, only a block away from the pay list. The fabric store employees stopped the fire in time to find... Anyone? Anyone? Bueller? No, Sorry. <laughs> Matches bound to a cigarette folded up in a piece of yellow Yellow-lined lined notebook paper. paper. Two days later, January 15th, there was another fire at a Hancock's fabric store just across the street from Payless.
0: Why does he like stores?
1: Because he's the pillow pyro.
0: Yes. Yeah, but like, interesting.
1: Yes. Yes. This time, it wasn't contained and ended up being almost as bad as the first Ole's fire, costing $500,000 in damage. Between witness statements, ruling out accidental causes, and the fires started at the other stores just days before, the Fresno fire team deemed this an arson. The very next day, January 16th, the manager of the fabric store informed Fresno investigators that their store in Bakersfield had also caught fire. Interesting. Why?
0: Why? That's not fair. If you're going to, okay, that's just not nice. Like, come on. Are arsonists ever nice? No, but like, come on. That's like, that's not, that's not fair. They didn't do anything. And now you're, both of them? Both of them.
1: Mm-hmm. Meanie. I believe it may have been around this time that the arson investigators themselves had coined the phrase, the pillow pyro. The pillow pyro. It was also the Bakersfield Fabric Store Fire that Marvin Casey entered the running to catch this arsonist. Love Marvin Casey. We love Marvin Casey. Okay. He's good. All right. He's real good.
0: I To be, to be fair, I've never known a bad
1: Marvin. Oh. I don't know that I've ever personally known any Marvins.
0: My childhood best friend's dad's name is Marvin. Mm -hmm. We mostly call him Melvin, though.
1: Melvin? (laughs) I don't know where that started. Okay. So I'm going to call him Casey, though, because I feel weird saying Marvin over and over again. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So Investigator Casey was one of the most experienced and respected arson investigators in California. He was called to two fires on January 16th. The first took place at a craft mart where Casey found the same kind of device that had been found at the very first Fresno Fabric Store fire, as well as the second Ole's fire. Casey was careful to handle the device and put it in an envelope. He had the team search oh, for match. also
0: flammable, though. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> what is that? I said, the whole the envelope is also flammable, though.
1: Well, it's just that he didn't just Throw it handle away, it any yeah. which way. He was on the scene, and he's the one that found it. Okay. Whereas previously, other people handled the devices, okay. so they couldn't then send it for, like, fingerprints and stuff. So he was smart about it. Put it in an envelope for testing, if you yeah. will. Um, He had... His team searched the entire store for matching yellow lined paper to make sure to rule out that, like, oh, somebody working here or something yeah. did this. While still on the scene at Craft Mart, Casey was then called to the Bakersfield Hancock Fabrics just two miles away. Once the fire was extinguished and smoke cleared, Casey could enter the building He found that the point of origin was a wooden box that had been stacked with two others just like it near or in a bin of foam rubber. Okay. So that basically told them it was intentional. Like those wooden boxes didn't belong in the foam rubber.
0: And also, it's like the same foam rubber. And it's exactly, you know, pillow crap that we've been dealing with.
1: An employee at Hancock Fabrics was able to give a description of a man she had seen just minutes before the fire started, which, I mean, let's face it, you're in a fabric store in the late 1980s. There's not a lot of men. Not a lot of men shopping in fabric stores back then. Casey knew they had a serious arsonist on the loose and began to evaluate the evidence to determine what type they were dealing with. What type? Yes. Yes. There's different types oh, of arsonists. Okay. We're it's learning the so psychology much. Ab- behind it, which I don't know. There's like five or six different kinds. Yeah. Yes. I'm not going to get into all of that, but I will. Maybe we'll make a little post about it next week, like the
0: different types of arson. Yeah. So that's a that good way idea. you can see. Well, I say next week, but I mean like the week before. When so we, it'll already yeah. go check our Instagram and our Facebook. Page. <laughs> it'll, it'll already be, be out.
1: Yeah. In the meantime, he had the device from the craft mart sent to expert Clive Barnum to check for fingerprints. No, did Clive also are work you, for the circus? Are you think? Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, are you thinking Barnum? Yes. Like, like, Fun fact. Uh, P.T. Barnum's descendant was a forensics fingerprint huh. expert. Nice. And the rare chance that any of you listening don't know what we're talking about. I don't know how. <laughs> but <laughs> well we do in the case that you don't. Yeah. We're talking about Barnum and Bailey Circus. PT Barnum. I will say pause. Not only that, but the greatest showman, like the how greatest do you not? Yeah. Okay. So a 13 point print was there, but it wasn't perfect. And it would take time for them to find the match. Okay. Well, I mean, yeah, that makes sense. I mean,
0: it doesn't it's annoying, but like what are you
1: going to do? Yeah. Bakersfield investigators, now on the lookout for anything that may be connected, got word that two more fires had taken place that same day in Tulare, California, a town that was about halfway between Fresno and Bakersfield. They're getting around. A small fire had started inside a sleeping bag at a surplus city that caused minor damage, and just 45 minutes later, a fire that was set in a display of pillows in the Tolaire Family Value Center with a device, just like the others, was recovered at the scene.
0: So I just want to clarify, he's bringing this device, the cigarettes and the matches and the paper, to the store and then finding things in the store the light on fire just just yeah, so that we are he just yeah. he
1: just casually and i think the paper is not only to help you know help the fire it's so that he can just casually hide it look like he you would look like you're just carrying a list yeah. like a shopping list so and then once he finds where he's going to set it he can just mm-hmm. casually light the cigarette yeah gently place it in the thing and once the cigarette burns and hits those matches then he can already be gone He's long gone. Crazy. One of the witnesses, I forget which fire it is, but one of the fires that a store employee actually did say, I did see a man, and it was one of the many fabric stores, I believe, she smelled cigarette smoke. Hmm. And so she started, like, looking around because she was looking for who's smoking. I'm going to tell them they can't be smoking yeah, in it's here. it's a fabric store. Like, it's going to exactly. get caught in the fabric. And- exactly. So even though back in the 80s, people smoked in all kinds of places, but it being yeah. a fabric store, you couldn't smoke in there because obviously everything is highly flammable.
0: Well, not only is it flammable, but, like, cigarette, the smell of sm- cigarette smoke is it's going to get in the in fabric. The fabrics, like, it's, yeah. you can't, yep. no. know.
1: So she was only one of two employees working at the time, and the store was slow and she smelled smoke. So she like stepped out from the mm-hmm. counter where they cut the fabrics and like looked around and she saw him, but he didn't have a cigarette in hand. He wasn't smoking. So she went back and helped the customer that was at her counter, and then bam, he's gone and fire started. Yeah. Now. Back to the fingerprint. Yes. They ran the print through every database they could, but found no match. Investigator Casey began to think it could be one of their own. Yeah. Due to the skill used and the proximity to the arson investigation conference that had just taken place that same weekend.
0: Well, and the thing about arsonists is that they tend to be super involved in the aftermath of their crimes.
1: Yeah, like posing as a photojournalist, taking pictures. Yeah. Or like, I don't know, being an
0: arson investigator. (laughs) (laughs) Seems like a good cover. I,
1: I mean, I don't know. I don't want to spoil anything. But I mean, I feel like that's kind of why we're here. Armed with some solid evidence and a hunch, Casey acquired a list of all the firefighters who attended the conference and where they would be traveling from. Yeah. Sometimes all you need is a good hunch. Narrowing the list to include only those who attended alone and passed through the Bakersfield area to get there, he ended up with 55 suspects.
0: Yeah, well, you can get through
1: that. Well, you would think. Oh, come on. Unfortunately... That brotherhood mentality took over, and Casey was dismissed by his superiors and borderline shunned by other investigators for suggesting that one of their own was the Pillow Pyro. His request to compare the print he had to the prints on file for each of the 55 suspects was denied, so the investigation came to a halt. All right, all right. During this time, John simultaneously complained his way to a promotion as captain and irresponsibly gave the media theories about arsonists who had not yet been caught. Interesting. Mm -hmm. I'm so shocked by this news. (laughs) In March of 1989... John headed to Pacific Grove, California, for another fire investigation conference. He left a couple of days early, claiming that it was a chance to connect with nature, and stopped in San Luis Obispo along the way. That same afternoon, there was a small fire set and some bedding supplies at a five and dime store. Oh my god. Just five miles south from where John was staying. The day before the conference began, there was a significant fire started in a Woolworths in a town along the path from San Luis Obispo to Pacific Grove. Like all the other fires, the Woolworths fire point of origin was traced to bedding and pillows. Bedding and pillows? (gasps) It must be the pillow pyro! (laughs) John stayed for the four-day conference, but told his wife he was going to take his time on the drive back. But he did ask her to take a train and meet him in San Luis Obispo. John also asked that longtime friend and California State Fire Marshal, Jim Allen, to meet up with him and his wife for dinner. Okay. What? What? Trying to set an alibi. I mean,
0: it's almost like he needed a cover story.
1: <laughs> but in the nearly 48 hours before John would meet his wife and friend in San Luis Obispo, four more fires would be set. He is really going through a lot of matches.
0: <laughs> like, yes. Must have been a big box, you know, like the big box you can get
1: <laughs> probably. The first 3 took place in the city of Atascadero which is about two hours south of Pacific Grove on the route to, you guessed it, San Luis Obispo.
0: The fun word, Obispo.
1: Yes, it is. All three took place in retail stores and were started in foam padding or bedding and pillows. In at least one of the fires, an employee found a piece of yellow lined paper near the point of origin. The last fire that day happened in St. Louis Obispo and was the worst. It was started at a party exchange and originated in some packing material. The fire managed to destroy the three story building.
0: Oh my gosh. And
1: caused around $500,000 in damage. Wow. Investigator Casey from Bakersfield heard about the fires along the Pacific coast and his suspicion that it was one of their own, was validated. He was like, oh, hell no. (laughs) This has got to be it. He contacted the organizers of the Pacific Grove Conference for a list of attendees and was able to narrow down his list of suspects even further to just 10 men who had also attended the 1987 conference.
0: This is some solid detective work by Mr. Melvin Casey. (laughs) Melvin.
1: This time, he was taken more seriously, and his request to compare the 10 sets of prints to the print from the 1987 Bakersfield Craft Mart fire was approved. To Casey's surprise, though, there was no match. Ah, Dang it. The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives was now on the hunt for the Pillow Pyro as well. That's a bureau?
0: Mm-hmm. Very specific, I feel.
1: You probably hear it called the ATF.
0: Oh. Yeah. That's what that stands for? Yeah. Huh. Marina. The
1: explosives was added on, I think, in later I years. See. but Yeah. It's usually shortened to ATF. I've heard of the ATF. Yes. Yes. Well, they had a whole task force organized to continue the investigation.
0: Well, yeah. Somebody had to. This is getting ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I think we're past ridiculous.
1: You would think. In the meantime, John Orr grew to be the media's favorite official to interview, as he always gave sensational quotes and theories rather than a concise and factual statement. Well, he's also
0: like, I looked him up because you know how I am. (laughs) Of course you (laughs) did. And he looks like every, he looks like what you picture when you think of like. Oh, yeah. First of all, he looks a lot like Paul Blair. I'm not going to (laughs) lie.
1: First of all, with a mustache. Yeah, they've got the same stash, bro. Oh yeah, I forgot. I don't know. I just think of Kevin. What's his name? And not James. See him with he a yeah. mustache. Yeah.
0: But second of all, like if I was if I had a lineup of white men and I had to pick <laughs> which one of them was an Orson investigator, I would. Know, you sir, it is you. I would be able to tell exactly who it was. <laughs> Go look oh, on our Instagram. Go look on our Facebook page, wherever hilarious. you follow us, and you'll see it. You'll know.
1: <laughs> you'll be like, oh, that's the post. That's the one. That's the one. <laughs> well, I'll try and find one with the chest hair for you. Yeah. I think there is one. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I saw okay. one. It's not a great picture. But but
0: it's, it's the but vibes it is Matt, because-, <laughs> because of the chest <laughs> yeah, hair. <laughs> like the you got to chest- get it in there. It's giving Tom Selleck, <laughs> but like a Tom Selleck wannabe. I hate saying that though because I love Tom. I love Selleck. Tom Selleck. What is it about us? Like, what is it there, about okay. Tom Selleck? That's so, so here's why
1: I love Tom Selleck: is that he reminds me a lot of the, my dad. Oh, but he's really not weird. terrible.
0: But he's like a good guy. Well, I have bad news for how I feel about your father then, because <laughs> I think Tom Selleck is so attractive. You probably would have thought my dad was my dad was <laughs> attractive say, when I will he was say, young, I don't, It's not that Tom Selleck is my type. He's not. But Tom Selleck in Friends when he's dating Monica. Okay. That's
1: the vibe. Okay. Anyway. Well, to me, that was creepy because I always looked at him like a dad. Like the well, dad, dad I always weird. wanted. Yeah. That is like weird. you look like my dad, but like you're nice and you're okay. cool. You're a PI. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this is a mess. Moving on. It's fine. Sorry. That's funny. Anyway, whatever. I think it's funny. I think
0: it's funny too, but I think some people might think we're weird. I I We are weird. I mean, okay.
1: (laughs) Listen, I am a little weird, but... Okay, moving on. It's fine. Show you're weird. That's the only way people know you and love you. And if they don't get to know you and love you, then... Fair enough. Too bad. Yeah. Okay. Anyway... John was telling everyone he was, too, on the hunt for a serial arsonist who he believed was using a device that allowed them time to leave and come back posing as a photojournalist in order to watch their work. He even gave a theory on the arsonist's psyche, claiming that they are likely a vanity pyromaniac and that they are seeking attention Or they're a true pyromaniac and that they get a sexual thrill from the act. Is that the weird sex thing? Well, as it turned out, John's sexual preferences were quite questionable. More than one of his previous romantic partners described their sex life as rough. They said he would always, not sometimes, Always wanted candles lit during sex and would do things like tie them up, rip their clothes off, and even want them to enact rape scenarios with them. Okay. Always with the candles.
0: It's the candles. hmm Like, can you imagine, like, you're in the moment and he's like, hold
1: on. There's not a candle. <laughs> I one. need a candle. Like, okay. I'm sure initially, like, they just thought he was being romantic. Yeah. yeah. But then but, it's weird. But then when you start getting rough and like then you always have to have a candle, that gets weird. That's weird. Well, it's just like, so, okay, hold
0: on. Does, did he, <laughs> okay. Could he like not start without a candle?
1: I don't know, but it always, basically it was alluded that it always had to be a candle or outside in nature.
0: Okay. For some reason.
1: Okay, that's Weird boundaries, but... And I didn't get into this, but I will because there's an opening. I believe it was his third wife, his second to last wife. They were married very briefly, I believe. And when she realized, like, whoa, you crazy. (laughs) Yeah. She kicked him out and she would come home and know that... He had brought other women to her house and had sex and she knew that it was him, he would leave evidence like a condom or something yeah. like this, but she always knew that it was him because it would smell like burning candles. Whoa. Yeah. That is so insane.
0: Yeah. Like, wow. So that's kind of like nightmare. Girl, fuel. Change your locks. That's, yeah, right?
1: Change, the move.
0: Change your locks if you ever, ever, e- just always change your locks. Just change them all the time. Like, <laughs> Let's just
1: change them all the time. Be on a good name basis with your locksmith. <laughs> like, I don't Maybe you don't go that far. That was like in our case about the and family. She always changed the locks. Oh, I don't remember that. Did she? The mother. Always change locks, and oh. that's how the brother kept his sisters out of the house. I didn't know that. I don't remember. Well, I'm sure you said. It. I don't yeah. remember it. Yeah, but yes, change the locks if you kick out your pyromaniac husband. Well, yeah, for sure. Okay, so though John had been long promoted to arson investigator by March 1990. He was still obsessed with the lack of brush fire safety compliance from residents who lived in the hills. See, guess what? That's what he did prior to becoming an arson investigator is he would go around giving tickets to people who weren't complying with the fire safety code. Guess what? Still a problem. Yes. Oh, absolutely. But. Basically, to give a little background for anybody who isn't aware. Oh, wait. I'm sorry. Can I I have a little legal thing
0: before we start yeah. based on the wildfires? So those of you who remember the baby gender reveal that started the big wildfires, I think it was in 2020. Fun fact for you, a lot of states, if you cause something like that, you will get charged and you will have to pay for every aspect of the fire service team and all of that. As it should be. And it's not cheap. And so don't just say it was an accident. Uh, nope. You were deliberately being like ignorant, like negligent. Yeah. And so therefore, here's a massive
1: bill. Yeah. Yep. I think that's fair. I think so too. Especially when you live in a place like California, like, you know, this is a yeah. problem. It's It's been a problem forever, yeah. which is what I'm about to get into is the history of that and why they have these yeah. l- laws about- how you landscape.
0: Yeah. Well, and like I think in some places too, if you have a fire, it's not necessarily a free public service. Like you either pay fire mm-hmm. dues or if you have that situation and you can't prove that you've paid your fire dues or your fire taxes, you get charged for it. Yeah. I mean, so if you're wondering why you're paying taxes for stuff like that, that's why because otherwise they're going to charge for it. Hopefully I'm not misremembering that conversation that I've had, but I'm pretty sure that's right. Okay. And if I'm not, to our dear listener, who we know will try and correct our it special listener. Our special listener.
1: <laughs> if you haven't figured it out, it's my fiance. <laughs> anyway, point made. Yes. Well, just so you have some background on that. Basically, this has been, brush fires have been happening forever in California. But as man <laughs> got worse, so did the brush fires. Yeah. I guess. So after an enormous brush fire in the 1960s that caused an unimaginable amount of damage, California enacted standards for landscaping that's supposed to help slow the spread of wildfire, especially along the areas that are populated. Yeah. John created a plan for homeowners that he claimed would help protect their homes and lower their insurance rates. But his plan was dismissed by both officials and residents alike. Well rude. Because I think his bosses are like, You're this isn't what you do anymore. <laughs> Stop it. Like, just do your job. And people just, you know, some people just aren't gonna care. There Yeah. We know that. Then we know it now. Some people just don't think it's gonna happen to them or whatever. They just don't care about the environment or whatever. Well, just a few months after he made this presentation. In June of 1990, a series of brush fires were started throughout the hills of L.A. over just about a week period or so. Three different areas were battling smaller fires when a larger one was set in Glendale. Emergency dispatch services were flooded with calls from residents from the area. Homes were being consumed fast and gas mains started blowing up in the midst of everything. It took every available resource, which included 74 units from all over the L.A. area and even courageous residents who helped fight it where they could to extinguish the last of it. The fire burned for more than five hours. Mm -hmm. 66 homes were destroyed, and it caused about $50 million in damage. But miraculously, only eight people were injured in the whole thing. Oh, that's, yeah. John Orr, the hero that he is, was the first to find the point of origin and determine that the device used was a rigged lighter. But his investigation went nowhere fast when multiple witnesses reported seeing several suspicious cars and activity in different places just before the fire started. So he's getting closer to the investigations, basically.
0: like he's not only is he inserting himself, but he's like, I found the
1: reason, like, he's getting way. And I think it was in this particular case, like, within his own fire department, Mm -hmm. other people started to suspect him. Oh, really? Because he literally just walked to the point of origin. He didn't go through the process of, like,
0: narrowing it down
1: and asking yourself the questions and figuring it out. He literally just, like, walked over and was like, here it is. And Uh so a couple of his fellow firefighters from Glendale were like, yeah, that was a little too easy. Mm -hmm. So the investigations for those brush fires remained open. But by December of 1990, the pillow pyro was back and started fires throughout Los Angeles area retailers. So their attention once again had to shift to Mm -hmm. that. Convenient. This time, it began with a fire in a department store curtain display in Highland Park. The damage was over $1 million. Three days later, a surplus store in Burbank was set ablaze, causing $750,000 in damage, and left one firefighter injured.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: The next day, a small fire broke out in the pillow section of a builder's emporium in Laurel Canyon. But was extinguished quickly and the infamous pillow pyro device was found. Hmm. This is the big one. <laughs> the big one as far as the store fires go. JJ Newberry's in Hollywood was next. The fire was started in some blankets and caused over $9 million in damage. Holy moly. Then a bed, bath, and beyond had a <gasps> hundred. 150- Not the bed, bath, and beyond. <laughs> No. I love a Bed Bath & Beyond. Um, They had $155,000 in losses after a pillow display was set ablaze. A Pier 1 Imports had $125,000 in losses. Also love a Pier 1. Yeah, I love a Pier 1. Stroud's Linens had minor damages. National Store had about $107,000 in damages. Crystal Promotion Store suffered over $700,000 in damages. It's just insane. It's just insane. The next series of fires began just months later in March of 1991, taking place in an area south of L.A. The pillow pyro had never targeted this area before. With three fires started in the same afternoon... The ATF got involved once again, and at one of these three fires, the pillow pyro's favorite device was found at the point of origin. Also, there were more witnesses this time that were able to give further details than past witnesses, but that also matched what the past witnesses had given. Yeah. Okay. So. So like. They're, it's all they're the starting same. to be able to tie everything mm-hmm. together. All matching. So when the ATF agent on the case took that print that, Mar- that Melvin, Melvin Marvin Casey, <laughs> Marvin. that Marvin Casey had gotten from the Bakersfield fire, and this time he ran it through the LA database of all the police and fire applicants, well, he was blown away by the results. Oh, was he now? It was. No, you're not gonna. I'm gonna. (gasps) You gotta wait till next time. Not till
0: next week. What are we gonna do? Oh, my goodness. Psych. Joke's on y'all. I get to hear it after lunch. (laughs) (laughs) Wow.
1: So that's a good place to stop. Well, great
0: job covering, like, all of this, all of it, like... It's a lot. It is, but I feel like you did a great job. I've got a great grasp of it. I've had no
1: questions. Good, good. All right. I tried. It's a lot of fires.
0: Yeah. I would have needed like a map. Yeah. And some pins, you know. We should do that. We should like make a little post with a map in all the different cities. I'm sure somebody's done it. Oh, well, yeah. yeah. We'll find them and give them credit. If if I can find it, we will. All right, guys. Well, we will talk to you next week when we will find out.
1: Well, you already know who the Yeah, is. (laughs) Yeah, we know who it is. We kind of got. I mean. But we're going to find out how he gets caught. The case does get a bit more interesting. It's not, obviously, because you're probably thinking, like, man, they're so close to catching him. Like, what else could happen?
0: That's famous last words in true crime, honestly. Yeah.
1: So we'll see. Till next time. Bye. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening, guys. Find us on Instagram and TikTok at Burden of Proof Pod and email us at burdenofproofpod at gmail.com.